Hi there and welcome to another episode of Leading. This is the podcast featuring two CEOs every time in conversation and exchanging notes on how they approach their work and their career so far. My name is James Ashton. I'm a financial journalist. Some of the CEOs who featured in this series from business, charity, technology and healthcare also appear in my book, The Nine Types of Leader, which is available to order. Leading is supported by Lockton, the world's largest privately owned independent insurance broker. Lockton's independence means its 8,000 associates worldwide are free to focus solely on their clients' risk and insurance needs. To hear more from Lockton experts, please visit lockteninternational.com gb insight. So this episode, my first guest is Stephen Kelly. He's the chairman of Tech Nation. It's the state-backed organization that supports the growth of the UK's most promising technology firms. Set up in 2004, Tech Nation speaks out on behalf of the sector and runs training and skills programs for young leaders. Until 2018, Kelly was chief executive of the FTSE 100 software company Sage. He's also been chief operating officer for the UK government and led two more high growth tech companies, Microfocus and the NASDAQ listed Cordiant Software. Stephen's joined by Chris Yeh, who is a Silicon Valley based author, investor, speaker and mentor. Along with the LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman, he wrote Blitzscaling, a book that explains how world changing companies like Amazon and Alibaba were built. He also founded the Global Scaling Academy to guide startup founders. I started the conversation by asking Stephen what it was like to be a tech leader in 2020. I think tech leaders are feeling obviously very conscious of the human tragedy around Corona. But um, in terms of their own businesses, you know, they've seen in many businesses uh, a massive acceleration. And it's almost like a tale of two cities. Those businesses exposed to hospitality, tourism, travel have obviously seen a, a massive downturn, almost with the demand just collapsing. But that's a very small percentage of the tech businesses. And most businesses have seen incredible acceleration. I think a lot of businesses obviously move into the cloud much quicker. And everybody said this has been more digital acceleration in nine months than the previous nine years. So a lot of the business we're involved in are growing faster. And also they've had the benefit of um, kind of no travel. So the impact on their operating expense has actually meant their profitabilities kind of probably hit new levels. So it's bizarre that out of the sort of human tragedy, you know, digital has just raced away. And that's just both in the consumer space and also sort of the business to business space. So some of the guys can't quite believe it, but I guess are they quite as confident with 2021 in mind or does it depend on that momentum carries on? Yeah, I think everybody, James, is struggling to work out what the new norm is. But um, there's been lots of shifts in terms of what Corona has done, particularly in technology businesses and uh, across the business community, how we've all gone online digitally, but how we have to make sure that we look after people's well-being. In most of the companies as well, one thing that hasn't been kind of picked up is just a generic productivity leap. And that might be because, you know, everybody's saving for commute time, uh, but also everybody kind of is very focused on Teams or Zooms or whatever technology they use. And it's very much kind of task oriented and very output focused. And I think just generally, you know, CEOs I'm talking to have seen a a 15 to 20% productivity boost. So going forward, I think, you know, they've now got a position where they're very clear about the demand in the marketplace. Uh, you know, I don't think that demand's going to go away 
when uh, even the vaccine comes out, normality resumes. And I think technology, you know, it's not only here to stay, but it's embedded in every industry. So I think the prospects look very good. And for UK tech, I think it could be a golden era. Chris, do you agree? Do you see similar trends uh, coming out of the States? Absolutely. I think Stephen's hit the nail on the head. For companies that were highly digital already, this pandemic has actually been largely a boon because they have been unaffected. Meanwhile, the competition, if they're competing with a more traditional company that had more of a bricks and mortar or atoms component, has suddenly fallen by the wayside. So if you take a look at what's been happening in the space that I focus on, which is the startup space, We actually did see some impact of the pandemic early on as people needed to adapt and adjust to the situation. So I track very closely the number of venture deals being done by the top venture capitalists. And as the pandemic began, that number did in fact decline. It's usually about 100 a month and it declined as low as 50 at its nadir. But it's since come roaring back. And for the month of October, for example, there were 107 deals done. So people had to adapt. It's not normal to write a multi-million dollar check without seeing someone in person. It's historically been the case. You want to look someone in the eye and shake their hand. Guess what? You can't do that these days. And the venture capital industry has adapted. And these funding rounds are going on. Companies are going out. I think that a great sort of microcosm for all of this is a company that most people are very familiar with, Airbnb. Airbnb began this pandemic in terrible shape in the sense that their business, which relies heavily on travel, was completely destroyed. And as a result, they laid off 25% of their workforce. They actually spent $250 million in keeping their hosts afloat. They lost a billion dollars in booking. That's the kind of shock that would kill most companies. Fortunately, the company is financially very strong. They're able to raise some money to shore up the balance sheet. But as it turns out, they were able to adapt. So they were able to switch very quickly from serving as a substitute for a traditional hotel on a business trip to being a place that really had a tremendous variety of longer term rentals for people who were leaving crowded cities and working from home in the countryside. And in fact, their overall bookings are higher than they were in 2019. And they are profitable. They were profitable in their most recent quarter, several hundred million dollars. And they filed their S1 and should be going out. So a company that at the beginning of the year was looking at an IPO and then a pandemic hit and destroyed their business, declined 95%. Somehow they've come all the way back and they're going public. Yeah, I was just going to ask Chris, because what happened in March is, and I'd be interested to see if he saw this in the Valley, you know, we were kind of like deers in headlights. uh, And basically what every one of the companies I'm involved in did in the space of 48 hours, they did a complete replan of their business and they made some pretty draconian assumptions, things like no new business for six months, renewals uh, would slow down, cancellations would increase uh, and they put a new plan in place and right-sized their expenses. The reality of how it's played out is there's been quite minimal impact on the top line for many of these tech companies. Renewals and customer uh, success has continued very well. Maybe it's 1% or 2% down. But generally what that's meant is that they're way more profitable with the new plans than they'd planned to be before. And uh, that means that they have a not necessarily a firepower, but they've they've got some real resources and financial capital to invest in growth coming into 2021 that they may not have anticipated before the kind of uh, planning. I think there's a couple of things that they take away from that. Normally, planning cycles, even at startups, could be I don't know, say four six weeks. 
Uh, but but what they did was move on a dime, like in 48 hours, to come out with a complete replan and execute it within a couple of days and then do great communications with all their employees. And, and I think they've actually learned that they can be a lot more agile, a lot more nimble, and, and move to execution a lot quicker than they'd anticipated before this crisis. So there are elements that they want to take forward into the planning cycle for 2021 and, and future years. Now, Chris, did similar sort of things happen in the States? Absolutely. I think what you described is exactly a phenomenon we, that we saw, which is that people having lived through multiple events in the past, whether it be the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, whether it be the dot-com bust in 2000, were more prepared. They understood that things could change on a dime. And one of the big questions was going to be, is this going to be a cataclysmic event like the dot-com bust was for the technology industry? Or will it be more like the financial crisis, which was terrible for most of the world, but ended up being more of a blip for the startup community here? And early on in the crisis, one of the things that happened is that my co-author, Reid Hoffman, who of course is the co-founder of LinkedIn and an investor at Greylock Partners, he and I recorded a podcast where we discussed this and we concluded it was more likely, given the situation, given the fact that vaccines were underway, given that the fact that these technologies were, were really going to deliver a cure or rather a, a way of, of getting past the pandemic, that we were looking at more of a 2008-2009 situation than a true Great Depression situation. Now, the other thing that you mentioned, Stephen, I think is so important is that in a time of crisis like this, many people would say, oh, well, the advantage goes to the large incumbents because they have the financial resources. And certainly those financial resources are important. But in fact, one of the things that's more important is the ability to adapt quickly. I've used as an analogy the sailing of a sailing vessel through a storm. The winds are shifting very quickly and the ability to very quickly change course to tack into the wind is more important than saying, well, I have this giant ship that's just going to lay at anchor while the storm is raging around us. So I think that it's actually been beneficial to the startup world to have this kind of outside impact because it's allowed them to adapt quickly and make inroads against larger, more established competitors that may not have had that same ability to adapt. And with that, as they adapt, Chris, I'm interested now, given you referenced the work you've done with Reed in the book Blitzscaling, do you think now the founders, the leaders of these business uh, have a renewed confidence and actually we're heading into this new period of blitzscaling of really, really fast growth? Absolutely. I am talking with CEOs all the time of startups at the Series B, Series C level that are in fact poised for blitzscaling. I just spoke with the CEO and founder of a new social network that's having incredible growth right now. They just raised a large round and he told me we have 30 employees and we know that in the next year we need to increase that to over 100. So despite the pandemic, despite the changes that have been made, because the technology industry has always been more open to remote working and even this sort of remote first world that we're in now, they are poised to continue to grow. And there are startups every single day raising large quantities of money, poised for growth, getting ready to really exponentially expand their business. I've noticed um, incredible leadership and I've been blown away with the CEOs in terms of greater level of sensitivity, doing amazing things for their customers, um, actually engaging kind of in the community, helping with food banks uh, and also their employees. So there's been a, uh, almost like an outpouring uh, of incredible leaderships I've seen, particularly in the tech sector, where not only did they do the planning and I guess the structured elements to how to handle a, a shock in the business, 
but also they did a lot more around sensitivity, brilliant uh, two-way communications, lots of mobilization of fun things to do with people working remotely, and then also kicking in a lot of sort of well-being programs to support mental and physical health of their employees. And uh, I've genuinely been overwhelmed, and um, I mentor a lot of chief executives, and I really think they've stood up tall and, and made us all very proud. Stephen, tell me about Tech Nation. So I think it's about 10 years old now as an organization. You've been chairman there for for a few months. There's a lot on there about coaching and community and so on. I think there's a target for unlocking growth potential in a thousand scaling tech leadership teams by 2022. What does that mean in practice? Yeah, I think um, so Tech Nation was established actually back in 2014 and it's really kind of flourished since then. It's got brilliant leadership under Gerard Gresh and some very committed entrepreneurs to building this platform, which is TechNation, which provides a community for coaching, community projects, and peer-to-peer contact with other fellow founders and chief executives, and a lot of rich content about how to smash through barriers of growth and scale up, whether you're in the fintech industry, whether you're in net zero, whichever segment you're in, health tech, edutech. And basically, it's a platform for ambitious founders and chief executives to come together and learn from each other and use some of the tools in terms of scaling companies. And particularly, you know, uh, again, Chris will very much know this. When companies get to about a million pounds, that's when we identify them as scale-ups. And then that journey to 10 million dollars can sometimes be like death valley but you hit barriers maybe at 50 million dollars 200 million dollars and you tend to plateau in terms of growth and what we're seeking to do is really accelerate that growth and smash through those walls so some of the great companies that have come through uh, the program include companies like monzo Cardo, deliveroo dark trace skyscanner and overall in the uk there's about 5,000 tech scale-ups and the important thing for the nation is that's where all the job, about 90% of the technology job creation comes through these scale-ups. You know, obviously, it's really important to have the startups because they build the pipeline, but it's the scale-ups that create all the value. And in the UK, we're lucky to have um, 82 unicorns now, which is head and shoulders above anywhere else in Europe and only kind of behind the US and China. And a whole load more, what I heard, a new phrase called sunicorns, these 250 to $800 million valued companies. So I think there's just now, which is kind of very different, and maybe we'll get onto it. it 20 years ago when I was in the Valley, uh, and when I went there 30 years ago, there was a rich ecosystem of fantastic founders, a whole VC network, and everybody, if, even if you talk to the janitor in an office, you said, what are you doing? And they, they'd say, well, I'm in the technology industry. Everybody was in the technology industry. And I think that's, that's come in very much for the UK and Tech Nation's uh, the platform that these companies can come together and really learn from each other and grow, scale, go international, uh, raise capital, get access to talent and skills and all the things that they need to do to really smash through the barriers. And I'd kind of say the UK is ready for prime time. And given what's happened with corona and the likely significant unemployment, there's never a more critical time for the nation than high value jobs and leveling up regions and exports. And that's why it's so critical that these tech companies are very well supported. 
Well, I was going to come on to your time in the Valley because there are a few tales from back then, Stephen. But I suppose the challenge has always been, as you say, you talk about the community you found there quite a few years ago. It's one thing about getting the companies together and sharing ideas and so on and bringing in the finance. But you almost have to encourage the confidence in the, in the founders to grow, to do it quickly, not to sell out and to really push on, to really you know, dream big. No, that's so true. And I think... Um you know, I, I was very lucky. You know, I spent, what, nine years with Oracle back in the 80s and 90s, and it was a company of triple-digit growth every year, 100% plus growth. Very fond memories. But what that taught me, it was almost like being in a teaching hospital of how to build and scale global technology companies and, and what to do, and what the playbooks are that you can actually go and execute in other companies. And it, it was very much the case now. And I'd say the UK sort of caught up with that. And now I think there's uh, the ecosystem and is sort of over the tipping point of the kind of more handcrafted scale in. And now I think there's so many high quality companies and serial entrepreneurs out there. And also, you know, there's people who have done multiple exits very successfully that can really encourage and basically build that platform of ambition that has to be the case. And I'd always, you know, commend my dear American friends because they, they do shoot for the stars. And, you know, they say you sort of land on the moon if you do that. And they tend to dream big. And I think certainly when I came back, what, 15 years ago to the UK, you know, I went into board meetings or whatever, and, and it depressed me that the board started talking about, you know, when's the exit? And I'd been in a NASDAQ company, which we put on the market, and the board, we, all we talked about is how we could grow, how we could go global, which was the next country, which was the next acquisition we were going after. It was all about organic and inorganic growth to become market leadership. And I, I learned very clearly there, and this is probably true for all companies, you either grow fast or you die slowly. There, there is no kind of middle ground. And especially true for technology companies, you've got to be the global market leader and you've got to assume someone else is going to come and try and eat your lunch. And it may sound pretty tough, but that's the way the world works in technology. And I think the use case, UK has really woken up to that. Chris, do you, do you agree? Do you think, as you observe the two markets, that the way UK tech as a leader in Europe has arranged itself is is a lot more sensible and, and if you like, catching up on the US? And, and what, if anything, do, do US tech leaders learn by looking back at Europe? Yeah, so I think that Stephen has hit the nail on the head. We live in a world which is increasingly winner take most. And what that means is that because of the way the market dynamics work, because we're all connected together, there are more network effects, there are more things that tend to cause there to be a single market leader who then dominates. And as a result, you really do need to be aggressive when you reach that scale-up period. Again, it makes sense when you're a startup, when you're trying to figure things out to do so in a capital-efficient way because nobody wants to spend money before you figure it out. But once you have figured out, once you've reached that stage that Stephen described, it's really critical to grow as quickly as possible. And that's what produces the companies that become enduring market leaders like an Amazon or an Apple or what have you. Now, the thing that I think is very heartening about the development of the UK tech scene is the rise of organizations like Tech Nation and other players that I know my co-author has been involved with, like Entrepreneur First and the Scale-Up Institute. Now, the thing is that many people think about the growth of an ecosystem and say, wow, we've got to make sure that there is plenty of money available for investment. And the financial capital is no doubt important, but financial capital is highly fungible. It can move around the world in an instant without a problem. And even in this world of Zoom, 
the human capital is far more difficult to come by. And so catalyzing that human capital, trying to train people up, give them that mindset shift so they are willing to be more aggressive, so they're willing to shoot for the stars, is such an important role in an ecosystem. And it's something which the work plays out over time, which is why in this first decade of existence, Tech Nation has accomplished so much. But like many other startups, I believe that the returns will tend to compound over time. So I expect even more from the subsequent decade than I believe we saw in this prior decade. And finally, you did ask about what do I think that Silicon Valley leadership and companies here can learn from looking at other places around the world. I think they can absolutely learn from looking at the UK and Europe. I think one of the areas where really the UK is, as far as I can tell, is far ahead of what the US has done is in the government actually partnering with these companies. In the United States, while there has historically been research funding that goes into the universities, there hasn't been as much direct funding or direct support for the entrepreneurial ecosystem as I've seen with things like Tech Nation. I feel like that's something the United States could learn more from. We're we have some things like a small business administration, but it's aimed more towards traditional small businesses as opposed to the venture sector. But on the other hand, you know, I think that the thing that other ecosystems need to learn from Silicon Valley is that respect for the entrepreneur and for all the people in the ecosystem who surround that entrepreneur. The entrepreneurs can't do it on their own. They need people who are going to come in as executives, who are going to be team members, who are also going to take that aggressive approach, have that entrepreneurial mindset and help those companies grow. I mean, very interested in that word aggression, actually, from both of you. You have to be driven, but you can't be uh, as many of these very, very successful tech founders are. But I guess there's a, there's a point at which you stop taking the people with you. Yeah, I think, um, and, and there's, there's definitely for Chris probably another a book in this. Uh, I, I've been blown away with leaders, particularly I've seen, i use an example, actually, Larry Ellison how leaders reinvent themselves and also probably Jeff Bezos, they just raise their game at every junction they've kind of gone through. And I would say, you know, there's some things that we can learn over in the UK from, you know, Chris and, and the Valley experience. I'd probably say this relentless ambition embedded within, you know, all the institutions, the boards, the management team, the exchange, the, the even the regulators, and that kind of growth mindset in, in terms of, yeah, winner takes most, as Chris rightly says. And then I think there's some gaps we still have relative to the Valley. Obviously, you know, kind of the culture where I, I always found in, in the Valley, uh, it was very much a bias for action. And I think there's still a little bit too much deliberation in sort of the UK psyche. And then there's some specific gaps around, you know, to get awesome product managers and product marketeers to do that product market fit and scale it up and plan end-to-end kind of product launches globally and stuff like that. You know, the UK has got an a incredible bench of talent, and I think we're still building that in terms of the UK. So there's certain things we look across the pond and say, wow, you know, that's, that's best in class and that's still the valley, and we've got a way to go. Stephen, I want to digress and talk about Larry Ellison, seeing as you mentioned him. I'm just curious what you got from him as a you know pretty young guy in the Valley, as you talked about how fast that company was growing. I mean, he's still there, relentless, longstanding, and so on. Was he an easy guy to follow? Was he inspiring? He, even then, did reinvent himself. And I think it got to the end of the 80s, and there was a recession kind of in 1991, 
And actually, we had uh, we're a public company, and we had a profit warn, and everybody did. What Larry did was really smart at that time is to look on the bench and realize, you know, some of his own relative weaknesses. And actually, at that time, he went out and hired a guy called Ray Lane. And Jeff Henley brought them in and, and pretty much allowed them to run the company. It was really Jeff and Ray for the next five years that completely rebuilt Oracle. And, and the interesting thing at that point, you know, the database market was very crowded. You know, had you had products actually out there that were probably as good, if not better, than Oracle's. You know, Infomix, Ingress, Sybase. And, and just back to Chris's point, and then there is always one. Because, you know, the battle is intense, the competition intense, the market leader always becomes, you know, 30 to 50% of the market. The number two can make okay money and, and profitability, but they're always looking after their shoulder. And then really there's just crumbs off the table for the other players. And, and Oracle then effectively went off on an acquisition spree. And that was up to that point, we'd never done an acquisition. Then we acquired uh, Digital Technologies Relational Database. Uh, but with Larry, back to him, I think the biggest credit I'd give him is, yeah, great leaders need great followers. And I think he hired amazing people. You know, we used to say proud people who refuse to fail. Uh, but he hired a cadre of outstanding people. And when you look at the people I had had the privilege to work with, people like Mark Benioff, Tom Siebel, Polly Sumner, Ray Lane, all these incredible executives that have gone off and, and built multi-billion dollar companies themselves. You know, that's another thing that Larry deserves credit for. He hired brilliant people and he also recognized his own strengths. And he, he uh, supplemented those with people around him who really compensated and built a really top quality executive team. This episode of Leading is supported by Lockton. We'll go back to the conversation shortly, but first here's Lockton's managing partner, Chris Brown, on the importance of mentorship in building an executive career. Mentoring for up-and-coming leaders is hugely important, as long as you get the right mentor with the right mentee. As you're coming up as a leader, I think it can seem quite lonely because you are trying to achieve in your career, and therefore having someone who is slightly disconnected from the business but has an understanding of your personal challenges and the business as a whole, I think is hugely important. No one is ever perfect and no one ever stops learning. So as a leader of the business, I still have a mentor relationship. I find it hugely important. I find it provides me with the opportunity to download and things that I would never ever normally be able to do within the business and also not really be told how one should act, but just share experiences and listen to a wiser head than mine. Chris, don't some of these big bosses lack the, the, I mean, obviously it can be incredibly successful, but some of them, it seems their Achilles heel is the a bit of lack of lacking of self-awareness. And, and maybe that's something that you can look at the um, this new crop coming out in the UK and, and Europe and learn from them. Absolutely. I think that you hit the nail on the head when you described and used the word aggressive and aggression. And I think we use the word aggressive to represent the willingness to take risks, to really commit. I think that if you think about the word commitment, that's something that Jeff Bezos talks about all the time. And historically, in order for someone to be willing to take those risks and to commit, they tended to be very aggressive. Someone very much like a Larry Ellison, who's one of the legendary figures of Silicon Valley, somebody who wanted to win at all costs, did refuse to lose, and was willing to be highly competitive in order to do that. 
And what I think we're seeing now is a greater maturation as people realize the importance of risk-taking, as that becomes more normalized, now people with a different kind of mindset can go out and become one of these great chief executives. For example, if you take a look at Brian Chesky, who is the founder and CEO of Airbnb, he's a very risk-taking kind of individual, but he's also got a kinder, softer, softer side, really focused on the culture of the company, really focused on making Airbnb a place of belonging, while still at the same time being a ruthless competitor. So I see some of that changing. Uh, I will note that one of the important things about Larry and all these other leaders, and Stephen, you mentioned there might be a book in it. There actually is something where I need to work on a book proposal. My agent's been bugging us about this, where there's a concept that Reed and I came up with called being an infinite learner. And the real thing about running a company, and Stephen, you know this from having run several of them, is that as the company grows and as the market changes, the company is not the same company. In fact, you have to continually learn new rules of the game and figure out new strategies to win based on those new rules. So being an infinite learner is the core of being one of these long-term founder CEOs, one of these long-term leaders that is able to take a company and guide it through multiple shifts in the marketplace. And that's actually something that we're thinking about working on in the years to come. That sounds like next year sewn up for you then, Chris. Uh, we've got a lot of different plans, but yes, 2021 is shaping up to be a very <laughs> busy year, and 2020 was already insanely busy. Can the you've talked about the the, the founder CEO? I mean, it, it typically uh, the the really really successful companies are in in this space are led by the founder for for you know quite a long period of time. And I think that's because the investors you know back the magic that they bring to it they back their style and their drive and so on can the the hired help if you like the incoming ceo ever be as effective absolutely now of course the reason that in general people prefer the founder ceo is there are real reasons why founders have a greater moral authority having been there from the beginning having been the people who embodied the company it's difficult for an outside ceo to come in and take that over of course as steven's career demonstrates it's certainly possible but what we do talk about, and by we, I'm referring to my co-author, Reed Hoffman, and I, is the fact that you could have multiple founding moments for a company. So, for example, let's take Oracle, which is one of the world's largest and most valuable software companies, something which Larry Ellison led very capably. Well, one of the things that helped reinvent Oracle at one point in time was bringing in Ray Lane from the outside to help Larry Ellison get the processes and procedures under control. And in a very real sense, Ray was sort of a co-founder with Larry Ellison of that new Oracle that emerged. And so one of the things we believe is that a company can have multiple founding moments and therefore can have multiple co-founders, even somebody that comes in and is a co-founder later on. We do believe when you bring in an outside CEO, it's important that that CEO become effectively a co-founder. They should not just be a hired gun. They should be someone who deeply feels the mission of the company and whom the employees will see as a moral leader as well as the person at the top of the org chart. I suppose you can say you can also see that in the Apple story. The, the return of Steve Jobs is very much the beginning of a very, very successful new phase for the company. Absolutely. And part of that is not just Steve Jobs' genius, although, of course, that was a, a very critical part, but his role as an emotional leader, almost a spiritual leader, if you will. Steve Jobs restored the faith in Apple as a concept rather than just thinking of it as a computer company. Stephen, um, Chris has referred to your career. I'm curious, how do you describe yourself as a leader? 
Yeah, James, I think um, just on that discussion as well, it's really insightful from Chris because I think that the most empathetic and far-sighted founders, obviously they have the vision, the original vision. But if they're doing their job and building reflective time, then they're looking at what the next phase will be when you get to 50 million, 200 million, 500 million, and what barriers that they need to break through in terms of international expansion, you know, developing partnership models, developing different channels, dealing with competitors, dealing with acquisitions. There's just so much you go through the journey decade after decade. And the, the amazing things uh, that, that actually Chris has highlighted is if, if you're an infinite student of leadership, you look at yourself and you become very um, self-aware and you then look at the next journey you've got to take the company on and you surround yourself with people who actually have done that before, who have got experience of the right attitude and keep the values very much intact, but actually propel it into a whole different ethos and how the company feels differently. The other alternative is they don't see it coming, they get hit by, by a bus and then effectively you've got a burning platform. And then you've got a mandate to bring in a new chief executive. Now, just generally where that's happened, I've done a couple of pretty seismic turnarounds, one at Microfocus and Sage. And, you know, sadly, the companies were on their knees and, and declining revenues at Microfocus. And um, what that gave me legitimized a mandate for change and it gave us a burning platform. But what I was very sensitive to is having massive respect for the founders. And I used to use phrases like standing on the shoulders of giants because I think it's really important for colleagues who have given their love and passion and spent two-thirds of their working life trying to build something very special for the new guy to come in and be very respectful of everything that happened in the first few chapters of the company. And then you've got to paint a vision of what the, you know, taking the founder's brilliant work to get the company to where it is now, what it means in terms of your vision of that business and market leadership and what you're going to do for customers and how you're going to change the world. And, you know, ultimately the, the role of the leaders, the very successful leaders are people who can connect their, the rational discussion and arguments of the head with the emotion and the evocative arguments you make, like I love coming to work with these people and I love the culture here and I'm really engaged in this company and the mission. And then when you have that, you have, you know, engagement of the hands. So it's the head, the heart and the hands that really give the power to awesome execution in companies. You know, I, when I've looked at leaders and they recognize that about themselves and then they get the next founder recruited to come on the journey and really, it's almost, I guess, like analogy of climbing mountains. You're in a mountain range. You're ultimately heading for Everest, but you have to conquer every mountain on the way. And every mountain's different and different weather conditions and, you know, winter weather conditions, summer, and you need different people around you and different skills that really will allow you to climb each peak and put the flag on top of the mountain. So I've always thought very much aspects of the, the the fixer role with some of those jobs that you've gone into, Stephen, and and that's characterised by quick decisions, you know, getting things done, and and that burning platform as a catalyst for changing the direction of of the organisation completely. But filling that role is not really you're not going to win any popularity contests, are you? I think what I've sought to do, James, is a great example is Sage. You know. I guess when I turned up at Sage, really lovely people in the company, very nice. Uh, and it was sort of very British and had been a market leader 
in the accounting and payroll for small businesses. And, and what I thought to do was actually connect ourselves with these customers, you know, the business builders, the people working 80 hours a week, grafting it, you know, the people who are doing all the job creation, you know, whether they're hairdressers, grocers, tech entrepreneurs, Every one of our customers, 3 million customers, was a very human story of love and passion to grow their business. So I actually use the narrative a lot more within the company, saying we've done a brilliant job to this stage, but bottom line is we're losing market share because we're not growing as fast as our competitors. And, you know, that's an unacceptable position. And there's only kind of one route that that's going to lead to. And therefore, you know, we care about this company passionately and standing on the shoulders of giants. Let's really put more effort than ever reconnecting ourselves with our customers, develop that chain of customer obsession and start getting the customers in the room in terms of developing real great innovation so that they can run their businesses and have a frictionless payroll accounting payments world and automate the, everything in their business to really drive their cost of operation down and allow them to do what they love, which is, you know, their dreams to go in and win customers and be a market leader. Their dreams were not spending Sunday afternoon, you know, posting their tax off to the HMRC or the IRS in the US. They want to get out there and they want to be with customers. So we, we've got such a great license and agency to really develop awesome technology to allow them to do what they love, which is entrepreneurs just love to grow and be with customers and win and go go global and, and really change the whole narrative. So I do think it's pretty important for all leaders to be able to connect you know, why is this important to us rationally, but also to create that emotion? I, I would say the leaders of today I see, especially in tech, you know, the Mark Benioffs, have got a great way of providing vision and very logical. And, you know, people write books about this, but also people feel very proud to work for Mark. The authenticity, uh, the love that he has, the compassion that he shows, how he has a strong point of view on big issues, how he takes a point of view and makes a stand on things like LGBTQI issues, you know, because he's, he's a principal person. And I think people do feel very committed to him as a leader in that example. And I think, you know, what I'd say is there's a whole new generation of these leaders and I sort of describe it around kind of the reboot of capitalism or compassionate capitalism where market leadership through that aggression that Chris talked about is sort of guaranteed because they're obsessed about customers, they're obsessed about product innovation, they care dearly about the customers and, and competition, but they want to do it in the right way. They want to build a company that's sustainable, that has a strong heart, that's connected to its community, that helps uh, vulnerable people around the world, uh, especially in the offices and the operations where they, they play out of. So I think what I've sought to do, you know, is connect that greater sense. And, you know, I, I could argue and would absolutely take the feedback that I haven't always done it the best. I've certainly looked at myself and said, would I have done things differently? Absolutely. But at the time, you know, I think, I think we could trust most leaders to say at that point in time, they thought what they did was absolutely right. And they had the conviction to pursue it and uh, kind of get it over the line. Chris, there have been occasions in your career when you've led the ventures that you've been involved in, but it feels like that's not been your primary modus operandi. I mean, you would rather be there helping leaders through things like Global Scaling Academy. 
Absolutely. One of the things that I tell people about being a CEO or a founder is that for caring and responsible people, it is one of the worst jobs in the world. I'm sure Stephen can recognize the feeling of this, especially coming into a turnaround situation. Everyone is looking to you for the answers. And every day, everyone is dealing with so many issues. And at the end of the day, they think, oh, well, I'm not sure what to do. But fortunately, Stephen's here. I'm going to go to sleep. He'll figure it out. So it's such a crushing weight of responsibility that I was glad to be able to uh, turn over to younger, more energetic folks. But you're absolutely right. Uh, I do focus quite a bit on helping entrepreneurs. My personal mission statement is to help interesting people do interesting things. And so like Stephen and the folks at Tech Nation, what I want to do now is help those entrepreneurs who are trying to make a dent in the universe. And Global Scaling Academy is one of the ways we do that. Global Scaling Academy, which you can find just at globalscalingacademy.com, is a community that we set up for entrepreneurs and corporate innovators and investors all around the world who are trying to figure out how are they going to best scale up their companies. It's an area where there just hasn't been enough focus. There's always so much focus on how to start a company, not enough on how to scale a company. And we've built the Global Scaling Academy specifically to address that so that people can come together. They can learn from courses and recorded content, but they can also connect with other people in the community who may be in a similar situation and who can offer that peer-to-peer support. And when you get those people in, what are the skills that are missing? What What is the missing piece if you're running one of those ventures to get it to the next stage? Well, oftentimes what happens is somebody comes in as an entrepreneur without a lot of work experience. They may not have worked in a larger company and they face these significant transitions they have to go through as their company grows. A company cannot be run like a five-person garage startup forever because as the company gains in size, you have to build processes, you have to build ways that people are going to work together. And so a big part of what we do is to help those entrepreneurs as they grow understand that the starting of the company and obtaining a funding is just the beginning. From here, the real work begins. And so we want to give them skills in terms of the product, in terms of sales and growth, but most importantly, in terms of how they themselves are going to be a leader to the organization. And that seems to be the key, Stephen. It's actually rounding out some of the people that have come up with a brilliant idea at the the kitchen table or at their laptop. And then you have to fill in the gaps, whether it's, you know, how to deal with people, how to deal with product or to deal with marketing. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, we probably underestimate, Chris knows, I know, you know, it's being a chief executive, being a founder is a roller coaster ride of, of emotion, daily ups and downs. And uh, you've you got to be that beacon of light within the company that's authentic and tells the bad news. But also, you've got to be the optimist. You've got to be the, the, the person who is absolutely shown where the North Star is. And I think practically, probably the biggest challenge, and Chris touched on it, is, is obviously access to capital and getting capital the right way. And I, I like this phrase. It's not always true, but you kind of want to make money before you raise money. So it's really good because that drives a culture where you're connected on the customer, you're connected for the use case, you're connected on what business problem we're solving for the customer. And it puts your energy and focus into that rather than just spending all time trying to kind of go up the 101, raise money uh, without the idea. So it really drives the execution. And I always say A-class strategy and B-class execution will always be inferior 
to B-class strategy and A-class execution because the execution companies tend to win out. And I think as, as a founder, CEO, you know, your biggest challenge typically is in the area of human capital. How, how do you hire rock stars? And I think obviously, you know, the Valley's rich in terms of brilliant people, but when it comes to awesome product management, product marketeers, when you scale, you need to get the team aligned and really connected around the mission and the plan. And that's, that's probably where, you know, looking back, I spent most of my time just trying to hire great people and then retain them and grow them, uh, mentor them and coach them to be the very best every day that they could be. And I think that's probably always going to be a perennial focus for founders and chief executives, particularly when you're looking ahead down the road and you can say, say we did 20 million revs this year. And next year, we've got a plan to do 35, 40 million. Then, you know, what does it look like in terms of the team I need around me in two years time? And, and I think actually the US companies tend to do this a little bit better than we do. They kind of think ahead and they get scale ready with the management team to make sure that they can kind of smash through those barriers. Uh, so they scale the team early. And I think that's a good thing to do because the most important element, if, you, if you've got a compelling solution for the customer and you've got a great management team, then you're going to be pretty successful. And again, very simplistically, I always say, you know, brilliant companies are almost like two sides of the coin, a chief executive's role. If you've got fantastic colleagues and employees who are really committed about the passion of the best people in the industry and their functions, and you've got really a culture where you're obsessed about customers, and you connect the two, then that's where magic happens. Brilliant employees doing amazing stuff for customers. You're going to be a high growth, very successful company. And you talked a bit about mentorship in there, Stephen. Anyone in particular helped you on the way? Yeah, actually, some of the folks, you know, uh, that I've mentioned, the Polly Sumners, the Raylands, there's one, one guy, a guy, Dr. Steve Garnett, who was actually with Tom Siebel and built all the international operations for Tom. He worked with me. He spent 10 years at Oracle. And, and actually, I worked for Steve, a great privilege to work for him. And he was a brilliant leader, uh, taught me a lot then and continues to teach me today, actually. We have great friends. And then he went to work for Mark, Mark Benioff at Salesforce and built the international business for Mark and worked for Mark probably for about 13, 14 years. And, you know, he's he's got not only all the ticks in the box around skills, experience, but he's an incredibly compassionate, nice, kind individual, uh, really cares about people, cares about the team, cares about customers. And, you know, you can't fake that sort of stuff. And it makes it very authentic. And, you know, he's been a, a brilliant mentor to me throughout my career. But there's been a lot of mentors. I, I am, you know, just relied on Steve. I've been very lucky that a lot of people have tapped me on the shoulder and always, you know, given me the benefit of their experience. And, I, you know, a phrase around uh, feedback. And all the companies I try to build was the culture of feedback throughout in the moment feedback, kind of not only on product developments, but sales meetings, pitches, things going well, what didn't go well, how can we improve that continuous learning, you know, which makes companies a really vibrant place to be. And this phrase of uh, feedback is the breakfast of champions, you know, that phrase feedback is the breakfast of champions. And, and that's what you want throughout your company. And what if I miss guys? Well, I would say that I just want to comment on one thing that Stephen had described and also give credit to somebody who has been a great influence for me. Jeff Weiner, who is the former CEO of LinkedIn, came in. Uh, my co-author, Reid Hoffman, brought him in to run the company. He successfully led it from 400 people to tens of thousands and acquisition by Microsoft for $26 billion. 
there were several things that really made Jeff's leadership really powerful. The first, of course, is that he really strongly believed in this concept of compassionate leadership and that a big part of being a leader was really caring about the people and and putting them first. And this is something I saw him live many times over the course of his tenure as CEO. The other thing that he did that I think is so important is he taught me this technique around what do you do about succession? Because as a leader, of course, you would like to think you're always going to be there, but someday you may move on. Are you going to have someone ready to take up the mantle, to take that baton and carry things forward further? And with Jeff, he had this great philosophy. He said, everyone on the senior management team, you need to have the following. You need to have somebody who is ready to step in if you get hit by a bus tomorrow. So you need to identify to everyone who the hit by a bus person is. Then you need to say, if you were to suddenly discover that you had to retire in a year, you have to know who would be the person that takes over in a year. And then finally, you always have to be developing the person that will be able to take over in five years. So having that perspective meant that you always had someone strong enough to take over immediately, meant that you were always thinking about how you were grooming that next person to take over, and meant that you were always building up that pipeline of leadership, which is something that is so essential and I think often overlooked. No, it's really good. I think, you, you know, the best, I guess, advice to myself looking back is uh, a couple of things really is always look ahead. And to Chris's point, I think that's so true. If you've got a fantastic leadership team, you don't have to be Herculean. You just need to hire fantastic people, set the tone at the top, provide the leadership and the direction, be a great communicator, check in uh, the kind of grassroots, spend and commit the company to customer obsession and delighting customers. Uh, but if you've got a great team around you, you can really kind of feel very confident and give them the air cover that they can really kind of probably exceed their expectations. And, you know, I think the most joyful thing as a leader is when people come back to you and say at the beginning, they say, you know, I thought that was going to be impossible. And I think this phrase around the authenticity of leadership, uh, because people do want to be motivated by uh, genuinely committed uh, leaders who really do care about the right things around employees and customers and well-being and do the right thing. So it's just looking at being a modern leader of a great tech company there's a hell of a lot of moving parts that you've got to cover as well as the kind of structural planning, execution, function, building the organization, raising the capital, looking at human capital as well. You've got to show, I think, the best leaders that sense of compassion that Chris was talking about and connection with uh, especially your employees because they're really motivated. Then they can knock your competitors out out of um, sales pitches and make sure that customers really do become customers for life. I think we've covered a lot of those elements, a lot of those moving parts right there. So uh, I'll just say thanks so much to Chris Yeh and Stephen Kelly. Thanks for a great conversation. Huge pleasure, James and Stephen. Such a pleasure to be here with you. Yes, great fun. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. This episode was supported by Lockton, a global independent insurance broker whose people have the freedom to think and act in the best interests of their clients. For more details, go to lockedinternational.com slash gb slash insight. You can find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes. If you're interested in the world of tech, listen out for Claire Gilmartin from Trainline, Entrepreneur First's Alice Bentink, or Mark Livingston from Pharmacy to You wherever you get your podcasts, or please take a look at leadingpod.com. More new episodes coming soon.